Welcome to the second season of the PEBC podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I will be hosting our series on phenomenal teaching. In season two, we will take a deeper dive into how the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment, cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding for each and every student. I am honored to share these conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers with you. Today's episode is sponsored by Pinnacle Assurance, Colorado's trusted workers' compensation provider. Thank you so much for listening in. Kelly Boswell is a well-known author and literacy consultant who spends her days working with children and adults to develop writer's workshops that are steeped in authenticity, choice, and voice. Some of Kelly's books include Write This Way from the Start, The First 15 Days of Writer's Workshop, Write This Way, How Modeling Transforms Writing Instruction, and she is the co-author of Crafting Nonfiction with Linda Hoyt. Today, Kelly is joining me on the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast to discuss the importance of cultivating life-worthy writer's workshops. Kelly, congratulations on the release of your latest book, Every Kid a Writer, Strategies That Get Everyone Writing. It is beautiful and will serve as a guide to establish writer's workshops that honor the brilliance of young writers and the brilliance of today's teachers. I am so honored to have you as a guest today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive into your current work. What does it look like for you right now to be a literacy consultant, to be someone who usually spends your time with children and teachers in classrooms modeling you know, the processes of writer's workshop? Well, in a typical year, I do a lot of traveling. I work with schools and school districts, teachers and classrooms and kids around the country. So like many authors and consultants this year, I've done a lot of that via Zoom or via other video platforms. Um, but I'm also the distance async writing teacher for 450 K-5 students in another state who are learning remotely. So there's a distance teacher that works with them um, in person. And then I am creating units and video lessons of mini lessons, K-5. So I think I'm on like the I'm, I'm doing about 21 units, and I think I'm up to 400 <laughs> video lessons. So I've done a lot of teaching um, of lessons for K-5 writers. Wow. So I am sure you have learned a lot through that process. 400 video lessons. You must have it kind of dialed in, and I'm sure over time your process has evolved. But what have you learned from teaching 400 mini lessons this year? Wow. The power of mentor text and modeling. That's key. To, in order to plan that many lessons, in order to teach that many lessons, in order to keep it engaging and enlivened for kids um, and for myself, I've had to be really streamlined and unfussy in my teaching. And what I found again and again, whether I'm working with kindergarten writers or fifth grade writers, whether I'm teaching them how to do a public service announcement or to create a how-to poster, we look at see what other writers have done by looking at mentor text. And then the kids watch me as I engage in that work and take what I've learned from the mentor text, engage in my own productive struggle as a writer right in front of them, crack my thinking open and model the process for them and then give them an opportunity to try it out. So that kind of structure of planning has kept 
things really unfussy and streamlined for myself and hopefully for the kids as well. Wow. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about planning because I think that that intentional planning can seem overwhelming at times. And what you just mentioned, it's streamlined and it's unfussy. It makes me think a little bit about the PEBC teaching framework. And I know you and I have had some conversations around that work, but when we think about the planning strand of our framework, we think a lot about planning with purpose in mind, people, and processes. And a central tenet of our work is planning tasks for students that are live-worthy, steeped in inquiry, and workshop-based. And so for you, when you're planning all of these mini lessons and you're thinking about your mentor text and your modeling, what does life-worthy writing instruction look like and sound like for you? I think it's important. In fact, I would say it's imperative that student writers write for actual audiences. Um, you know, when a, when a student completes a writing experience or task and then just plops it into the teacher's basket for a grade, it's not very motivating or engaging. And I'm not sure it's really worthy of their time. What right. we want is for students to be engaged in writing that real writer's experience. I love the quote, um, Mem Fox, who's a beloved author and teacher of writing says, you and I don't engage in meaningless writing exercises in real life. We're far too busy doing the real thing. And by doing the real thing, we constantly learn how to do the real thing better. So I'm always thinking as I'm planning, I think of four main questions when I'm planning. Is this, is this engaging? Is this, well, let me, let me back up. Is this meaningful? Is this purposeful? Is this something that real writers do? And would I be engaged in this work? So those four questions are always kind of spinning around my brain as I'm planning. So I'm thinking, okay, do real writers always fill out a graphic organizer? No, they often will plan across their fingers or create a table of contents or will talk about their writing, sketch out their writing. So I'm always thinking I want to create writing experiences and writing lessons that are worthy of students' time and energy. And I think when they know that they're writing for a real audience, that's, that's powerful. Wow. So, you know, thinking about that idea of what do real writers do? What are authentic processes that real writers engage in? And what are the authentic products that students can create? So those two seem critical components in terms of life-worthiness. Absolutely. So I guess my question for you then is if we, want to, if we really want kids to write authentic pieces, and I'm guessing that there's an element of inquiry in that. For sure. That students have to figure some things out in conjunction with their teacher. And so then my next inference might be that students need great mentors and great modeling like you mentioned in order for that to happen. And so there's a quote in Every Kid a Writer that you wrote, modeling doesn't require you to write perfectly. When you write in front of your kids, you're not modeling perfection, you're modeling process. You're showing them how you think, plan, make decisions, cross things out, change your mind, revise and persevere. You're showing them how writers write. And I was thinking a lot about that, that role of modeling and being a writer in front of your students or actually trying to write the actual piece, right? Like trying to construct that. What can we learn about ourselves as writers that we can share with kids? So I'm wondering if you can 
share a little bit about how do you kind of combine your mentor text, modeling, and curricular expectations? Absolutely. How does that all come together? Yeah, it's powerful because typically in a typical writing classroom that many of us were part of as students, we were handed a rubric or an assignment or here's what needs to be in your piece. But with the students I work with, we start with a mentor text. So if I'm teaching kindergartners how to do a how-to poster, I pull up those posters that they've seen around their classroom, how to wash your hands or how to put away your lunch tray or how to wear your mask. And together with the kids, we can look at those posters and say, what makes a strong procedural text? So even kindergartners can notice there's a title, there's numbered steps, there's pictures that go along with the steps. Um, of how to or procedural piece uses bossy language. It doesn't say please put place your tray. It just says place your tray in the on the shelf or on the counter. So the together with the kids, we create a list of characteristics of a strong whatever it is they're writing. So right now I'm working with fourth and fifth graders. We're doing an informational slideshow. So we're looking at an informational slideshow that's already been done, and we're taking it bit by bit and saying, what makes a strong informational slideshow? We create a list together. So there's that inquiry piece. So I haven't done all the thinking and work for them by looking at the mentors and saying, here's what you need to have in yours. But we're doing that together and noticing those features. And then they watch me use that features chart that we just created as I'm beginning to think about mine. And then just really cracking open my thinking so that Kids can see the productive struggle that I have as a writer. So I don't plan out my writing ahead of time. It's on the spot, off the cuff. So they can see that messy process so that when they go back and try it on their own, they're not shocked when it becomes messy or challenging. They've already seen an expert, quote unquote, writer go through that productive struggle. Absolutely. So then they're having that worthy task, if you will. That's the life worthiness is that real writers do have productive struggle and real writers produce pieces that can be found in the real world. Yep, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about standards or objectives or expectations, you know, across all schools, all systems, there are things that kids are supposed to know or that we're supposed to teach So when you think about your planning or planning for the year or like the planning that you've done this year, how are you, you know, taking these great mentor texts that occur in the real world, pairing those with your modeling as a writer who grapples, how do you then align that work to, you know, system expectations? Absolutely. I think there's a false narrative out there that, you know, teaching writing used to be so fun, but now we have these standards or these outcomes as if you have to choose between one or the other. And the point I make in my book, um, Every Kid a Writer, is in every chapter we look at a piece of student work where a student has been engaged in life-worthy writing, and we put it next to the standards for that state that that student is in, and we see how it aligns perfectly So the more I look at state outcomes or standards, the more I see that they really allow for choice for teachers. They don't say you have to teach it this way. You have choice of the kind of mentor text you want to use. You want to use mentor text from a diverse 
group of writers, including student writers. One of the most powerful mentor texts we've u- I've used this year come from actual students. It's one thing to see how a published writer, Dave Pilkey or um, you know Jacqueline Woodson, does something in their writing when it's published. It's very different to see something that another student has done. It makes it feel a little bit more doable. But what I found is when we do inquiry together and we look at a mentor text and we say, what makes a really strong opinion piece or persuasive piece? And we make that list. Basically, it coincides with what the standards are. So I've learned to make peace with the standards that the standards are really just the qualities of good writing within this genre. But you have all this choice as a teacher in how you want to teach those standards in a way that's worthy of kids' time and that's life-worthy. Absolutely. And that's so interesting when you think about it, because if you think about the word standard, like it is really defining quality. Yeah. And so making peace with those standards and being able to see that connection, I think is really important. When you think about planning for writing um, and, you know, this idea of planning for people, person, you know, process and, you know, just that context, what about writing across the curriculum or writing across our day or how might writer's workshop or writing instruction fit in with reading instruction? Oh, they're so closely tied. In fact, I often say that if you're trying to teach writing without, if you're trying to teach reading without teaching writing, it's not going to go anywhere. They, they fit hand in glove. You know, reading is decoding, writing is encoding. You just cannot teach one without the other. So what we're finding, especially in K-1-2, that the more kids write, the more able to read they are because they're learning how to be strong, literate learners. Literacy literally means power over letters. But oftentimes we hear that word literacy, we immediately think reading. But literacy is power over letters, which means it's reading and writing connected. So what I'm finding is that I'll oftentimes, like if I just did a narrative unit with second and third graders, and we looked at some mentor texts together, but then I gave them a challenge as readers. I said, today during readers workshop or during your choice reading time, as your reading narrative, see if there's something that we missed that we can add to our chart that you're seeing that writers do. Or if I'm teaching kids how to conclude an opinion piece, how do other writers conclude an opinion piece? I give them a challenge as a reader. We've looked at a couple examples, but get out there and read some other opinion pieces and see how other writers end and see if we can add some different ideas to our chart. So it's that they're they're reading like writers. So they're not just reading what the writer is saying, but they're noticing how the writer is doing it. And then they have a skill for the rest of their lives. Because when they get to a certain age and they're applying for a job and they need to write a cover letter, they're going to remember, oh, I can look at a mentor text. I can look at several mentor texts of cover letters to see how these are structured. And that will help me as I'm crafting my own. So you're giving them a tool they can use for the rest of their lives as writers. Absolutely. And like you said, that power over letters is so intriguing to think about. Just all the ways in which reading and writing are connected and should remain connected in classrooms. Yep, for sure. So I think that takes us a little bit to our next question. Um, 
know, in Every Kid a Writer, you describe the ins and outs of the writer's workshop in great detail. Um, so when you consider the different types of learning experiences that students need, and you've mentioned some of those already, when we think about students returning to their classrooms, either this spring or next fall, what do you think we need to prioritize as teachers of writing or supporters of writers? And then it, for those who maybe haven't had an opportunity to implement a writer's workshop, what might that look like and sound like? Yeah, it's never too late to start. But if you've had kids who are online or in a hybrid situation and are now coming back in person, you've got to establish those routines and rituals um, because it's going to feel like another first day of school. So it's going to take the time to really connect with kids and to set up those routines for workshops so that kids have that autonomy where they can run the workshop whether you're there or not. But that takes time and it takes preparation and it takes trusting children as well. Mm. Um, So I would caution teachers, don't freak out about, oh my gosh, I've got so much curriculum to cover center the student rather than centering the content. And you're teaching writers. You're not just teaching the subject of writing, but you're teaching actual human being writers. So if you focus on kids, they will always lead the way. And you can be responsive to what you're seeing in the classroom. But I think as you're establishing those rituals and routines for a workshop, of course, you want to have high quality and diverse mentor texts from a diverse amount um, uh, array of authors. You want to have authentic teacher modeling so they can see you model. We don't just show them, this is what someone did. Now you should try that. This is what someone did. Watch me while I try that. Now it's your turn. Um, And then time to talk. I um, I think sometimes we worry that kids have lost time or lost instruction. And so we feel like we need to rush, but to give them that time to talk. Oral language is the foundation on which literacy is built. So in order to be a strong writer or reader, kids need to have time to talk. That oral language is so powerful. And then just time for them to practice writing in a safe environment in the classroom. I love Peter Elbow's quote, and I think about it often. He says, you have to play a lot of bad piano before you play piano well. And I have a beginning trumpet player in the house and a beginning drummer in the house. And I can say, you have to play a lot of bad trumpet and a lot of bad drumming before you learn to play the drums well. But I think sometimes when we teachers feel stressed for time or that we're not covering the content, we don't give kids the space to have that independent practice and to not have it be perfect every time. But knowing that practice over time we'll see results with kids. And then lastly, just that conferring, connecting with kids, making time, even if it's just a few minutes to check in with a student, to make eye contact with them, to show an interest in them as humans and as writers is going to be ultimately really powerful in this time. However, your back to school plan is going to look for kids. Absolutely. That opportunity to build connections with students, build relationships, get to know them as people, but also as writers. Right. And so I want to think a little bit more about that practice time. 
because I think we've talked a lot about the mini lesson. We've talked a lot about selecting mentor text, and we've talked a lot about really, you know, being able to model and open our minds as writers and really demonstrate our own struggles for students. But when students are then, you know, grabbing the pencil and they have that opportunity to talk with one another and to practice and have an opportunity to confer with their teachers, what does that look like and sound like in a classroom? How would you describe kind of the aesthetic of that? I love when I go into a classroom and I can't find the teacher because the teacher is on his knees or on on a short little stool next to a student and he or she just blends with the other learners. Um, I think too choice, if you can if the more choice you can give kids during practice time, the better. Simple choices like choice of writing paper, choice of writing utensil, choice of where to sit. If you need to spread kids out anyway, why not open up the classroom and say, choose a quiet spot within your bubble where you can be comfortable as a writer. And then the, just this kind of hum, this kind of um, buzz of, of activity and engagement, a little bit of chatter going on with writers and a teacher who's just coming alongside. Sometimes soft music can help during that independent time. Instrumental music, pretty soft to just kind of bring everything down to a calm place. But it's really, I tell teachers, get as low as you can, as quick as you can when you're conferring. Mm. You want the child to be elevated and you're there to support. So rather than looking over a child's shoulder to see how they're doing, none of us feel our best or do our best work when someone's looking over our shoulder. But when you come alongside a student next to that student and the student feels elevated, you're giving the message that you're there to support the work that they're doing. You're not the corrector in chief checking to see if they've done things correctly. That can be a paradigm shift for a lot of teachers and a lot of students, depending on what their experiences have been with writing in the past. Yes, for sure. And so you're really, really, like you mentioned trust earlier. Let's talk a little bit about that. How do we build in those opportunities to trust students and then to trust ourselves as teachers? Yeah, it is a huge paradigm shift. And I walked this journey myself. I remember coming alongside my students to confer and they would always grab their erasers. Like, okay, what is she going to have me fix? Um, That's where I was. And I was doing the best I could with the skills I had at that time. And I'm so grateful for so many coaches and mentors and principals who sent me to professional development sessions so that I could make that paradigm shift. But it was a huge shift. Mm -hmm. And it was a release of control. I'm a recovering control freak. I've been in recovery for about three years. It's been about 15 minutes since I last tried to control someone or something. (laughs) So for me to let go of that control in writer's workshop took a lot of support. I needed Mm -hmm. a lot of support. But as soon as I did, and I trusted students, I was shocked and amazed at what they could do. And I find that now, this is, I think, my 28th year in education, I find that every time I work with kids, that I, when I release that control, and I release that choice and voice, kids will always surprise me in the most miraculous and amazing ways. Sometimes I feel like we put kids into boxes, like, well, they can only do this. But when you give them the choice and you trust that they have something worth saying and that they can and want to be heard 
amazing things happen. Mm. You know, it makes me think about the idea that workshop is not just a structure or a system. It's actually a belief. Absolutely. And that belief in students' brilliance and their abilities. Right. And so it, it causes my friend, Sarah Duncan, she was one of my mentors, said that when we graduate uh, and get our teaching degree, someone gives us a pair of red pen eyes so that when we look at a piece of writing, we can just easily see all the mistakes that the child has made. But what I try to do is retrain my eyes to look first at what the child is doing well. And so it's more of an asset lens than, well, they didn't do this and they didn't do this and they didn't do this. But I think it was Don Murray said, we learn primarily by building on our strengths. Mm -hmm. So it's not just, it's not just a feel good frill to let kids know what they're doing well, it's actually going to help them improve as writers when they know what they're doing well and, and what it's doing for a reader, it's going to help press them on further to develop as writers. And I think that's an interesting idea to play with in terms of our work as adults, that for teachers who are back in classrooms with students, some students they've had alongside of them all year in various configurations. Other students might have been out of the classroom for 18 months by the time they return in the fall. And as teachers, how can we also recognize the assets in our own work? How can we recognize what's going well with our workshops and what can we build on so that we see the assets of our students and see then the assets in our own instruction so that we can continue to grow and be efficacious. Because yeah. I feel like there's a pressure that's maybe mounting or growing a little bit returning, regarding returning to school and maybe this idea of lost time or lost learning. And you had mentioned it earlier, like to when we do return to classrooms, how can we avoid that kind of freaking out or being really reactionary to that yeah. pressure? Yeah. None of us do our best work when we're fearful or anxious. And so to just take a deep breath and to focus on the student, it's what you center. If you're centering the lost time, that's going to cause anxiety. If you center your students and being responsive to what you see, that's going to help you feel empowered. There's, if you have students that come in that have lost time, there's nothing you can do about that lost time now, but right. you can look at where's this child now, what is he or she able to do right now, and then how can I nudge them, encourage them, give them time and space in a safe environment to take the next step. So instead of looking like, oh my gosh, they don't know how to do this, 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 or their spelling has really, you know, gone downhill during this time, look at what they are doing and then go from there. And then that responsive teaching is noticing where your students' gaps are. For instance, I'll take spelling. If you're noticed like, wow, their spelling has really gone downhill, I can teach many lessons focused on what do I do when I get to a word I don't know how to spell? And I can teach them lots of different strategies within a unit so I can be really explicit and focused on a particular skill that they're lacking, but I don't need to take the joy or the life worthiness out of what they're doing. So if my kids are doing a public service announcement and they're writing that, I can still put in lessons about capitals and periods and proper nouns and spelling, 
but they're learning those conventions. It's contextualized within the real writing work that writers do. And when kids know that their piece is going to be shared with an actual audience, they're more motivated and engaged to do the hard work of revision and editing. As a writer myself, I think I've written five books for teachers, I think eight for kids. Um, I would not edit and revise just because, you know, it's, I don't have much to do this afternoon. I just want to <laughs> snuggle up with my blanket and do some editing. I only edit because I value and respect the audience that's going to be reading it. Otherwise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't edit it. So it needs to be worthy of an audience. And when kids know this is going to go to an actual audience, now conventions matter. Absolutely. And that takes us back to our theme for our talk today around life-worthy instruction and life-worthy writers' workshops. So my question, the closing question for you, is you've had this tremendous year of production, really. I mean, you've created over 400 video lessons, mini lessons for writing. When you think about your work with teachers this year, your work as a coach, your work as a teacher of of writers, what do you want to carry forward? I think first and foremost, to keep things simple. And simple doesn't mean watered down. It just means streamlined and unfussy. It doesn't have to be a big production. Good teaching doesn't have to be fancy. It can be streamlined and simple and powerful. Um, And I I think keeping things streamlined, simple, unfussy is something I want to carry forward for myself as a teacher, um, but also for students to keep it streamlined and unfussy. I think another thing I want to carry through, and this has been such an incredible experience to create over 21 lessons, um, units, and hundreds of lessons, I've learned again and been validated again to know that Shorter units are powerful. We don't need to be doing narrative writing for 12 weeks. And because I'm creating a piece of writing alongside my students, I kind of know, I can kind of get a feel of, I'm done. I'm kind of done. The energy is starting to sag. The engagement is starting to sag for myself. So I know I can wrap it up. So I've kind of found like a three to four week unit is plenty. And then knowing that I can come back and do that unit again later in the year because I've done such short units. So I think by the time this year is done, my, my students, the students that I'm working with will have several opportunities to do narrative writing and several opportunities to do informational writing and exploring all kinds of text types, narrative poetry, biographies, you know, not just the personal narrative essay. So keeping those shorter units... Mm-hmm. It's really like keeping powerful. it fresh. And again, it gets back to the authenticity. Yeah. How much time and energy do writers spend on a short piece? Exactly. And, ha- you know, and, and then when we're thinking about ourselves as writers, like you mentioned, like the energy, how do we keep our energy up? How do we stay engaged? How do we ensure that the work is fresh? That seems critical. And I think the shorter units is something really interesting to explore. And I think, too, within that unit, if I'm doing a narrative unit, well, the question I ask myself is, where do I see this kind of writing out in the real world? Mm -hmm. And then I can think about how can I engage students with those experiences within this unit to keep the energy high, but to also make sure it's worthy of their time. 
Absolutely. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was a joy to be with you. It has been a joy. And I know that all of our listeners are going to be thinking about this idea around life-worthy writing and all of those components. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I hope our time together bolstered your agency and understanding. I would like to thank our sponsor, Pinnacle Assurance is Colorado's leading workers' compensation provider. For over 100 years, they've been at the forefront of protecting, understanding, and caring for workers and local businesses with trusted coverage and expert safety resources and services. The ways we work will undoubtedly evolve, but the need for worker protection always remains the same. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Wendy Wardhofer's newest book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC provides customized, on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram.